Uh, it's Matthew 5, verses 21 to 37 from the Sermon on the Mount. It follows the Beatitudes, salt and light, and where Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Concerning anger, you have heard that it was said of those ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there uh, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to the court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Concerning adultery, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. Concerning divorce, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Concerning oaths, again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the, great, the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let your word be yes, yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And as challenging as that is, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, everything went quite quiet during that reading. <laughs> Do you know, I asked um, Paddy Donovan, our curate, as part of his training to put this series together. And a few days ago, I sort of opened out, what's next? My name's on the road. <laughs> and I was like, anger, lust, divorce. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. Um, but as Simon said, this is the teaching of Jesus. And the reason we're doing the Sermon on the Mount is, if, well, if you're here for the first time, or even just to remind those of us who aren't, um, we're committed to seeing God's kingdom come here as much as he will allow us before Jesus returns. Uh, we call that 2033, which is where we've simply taken Jesus's 
uh, flow, it seems, from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, <laughs> on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and so we basically said, we, we do not simply want to build an awesome church. We don't want to just have good services. We want to see God's kingdom, what marks heaven, becoming a reality here on earth where we live. And we, ta- we tasted a foretaste then, didn't we? You know, just being in the, you know, we all stumbled in after our weeks, good or ill, and suddenly just being in his presence, suddenly just the lightness, the joy, the freedom, the healing, the beauty of him, where he is, the king of heaven, just becomes our reality. And don't you want to just share that? Don't you just want that everywhere? You know, doesn't it break your heart to think of people living without him? You know, trying to pick their way through the snares of life without Jesus, without the beauty of his presence, without being reconciled to the Father, without knowing his love that takes us. Don't you just want to share that? Um, And this is what we're committed to in this place. And every year we sort of say, Lord, how do we... How do we do the next bit? And back in June, uh, a year or coming up to a year ago, just as a senior team, um, we just felt Jesus was saying, I want you to focus on the narrow road of character to create a fireplace for the fire of my presence. When you think about it, in the winter, we all light fires in our homes, don't we? And the only way that they don't burn the whole place down is because they are installed within a fireplace that can contain and steward the fire so that it can do a good job and heat the home. And when Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's been doing some awesome, what we would say, kingdom ministry. He's been preaching the kingdom. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. He's been proclaiming that heaven is at hand. Um, And he's been touring around. The crowds are following him. And before you know it, he takes his disciples up a mountain and begins to teach them. And it doesn't sound very kingdom, kingdom ministry, does it? You know, but what he's doing is he's constructing a fireplace of character to contain all that's happening. Because we know how hard it is when anger turns into broken relationships. When horrible sin stuff explodes and, you know, leaders fall and whatever. Some of us here, in a very real way, will know the agony and anguish of divorce. And what Jesus is teaching here needs looking at where he's going, but it's really to construct a safe way that we cannot mess this up. Because we do mess it up, don't we? And we need his saving, wonderful, daily grace to, to help us not mess it up. And this is what he's doing in this passage. Now, it needs looking at carefully because it's not always as simple as just to apply it word for word. Now, I'm not trying to do, you know, acrobatics to get us out of that, but I don't remember reading anywhere in the Gospels that one of the disciples had an amputation halfway through or plucked out his eyeball. Do you remember that story? No. (laughs) But I, you know, I know they weren't perfect, 
So what is Jesus getting at? What, what's going on? And so just going to think that through for a few moments. And before we do that, I just want us to think through what we bring naturally through our background and our education before we read the words of Jesus. And what we bring is the formation that we've had in the world through our schooling, through our background, through, through the media, where we've been schooled in individualism. And how that feels is we don't like rules. We don't like people telling us what to do. <laughs> because we've been trained that in, really, for, if you want, want to do philosophy, for the last two or three hundred years, in the emancipation, the, the freeing of the self. Which means that, you know, the, un, the unrestrained self is almost like the God that we've been quietly schooled in. But it gets worse than that uh, because in this day and age, because of that, the, the next implication is that we're, we're subliminally taught, and sometimes overtly taught, that any rules or boundaries create casualties. So what we don't like in our culture at the moment is a firm boundary because we've been taught to think, who's losing out on, on that boundary? So then when we come to the law, and let's remember, it, it should disrupt us, because Jesus said, it's not a simple... So, sorry, let me back up. So we innately think, unless we recognize it, we innately think, law is bad, Old Testament God, uh, Jesus, good, yay, you know, Jesus is like this sort of 70s, like, ganja-smoking hippie, you know, who we really like, and like, mean old headmaster in the Old Testament. And it should disrupt us when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm suddenly like, man, if you were like the happy guy, and he's the horrible guy, then how come you're, you're kind of fulfilling the law? What, what's that about? And that's because the law in the Old Testament was really the headline for, for how God sees the law, not me thinking I know everything, but how God sees the law is that this is the best life he could possibly want for us. This is the good life. And think about it for a minute. Who feels absolutely shattered because they get pinged constantly by WhatsApp? It's probably us as a church. <laughs> Most of our church operates on WhatsApp. Ding, 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 ding. Um, and Dee's like, oh, wouldn't it be great just to have a day free of that? Well, guess what? Someone thought of that before we did. It's called one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have a Sabbath day. And guess who it's for? It's not for God to keep him happy. Who's it for? It's for us. So it's kind of, when you think about it like this, the law is the good life. Isaiah 48, 17, um, the Lord says, I am the Lord, thus says uh, the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, you, your God, who teaches you for your own good. This is the good life. And for a sort of longer exploration of this, do head to our podcast, The Roots Pod, because I interviewed um, Reverend Dr. Ian Paul, a theologian, uh, wicked interview 
just on the role of the Old Testament law in the New Covenant. It's really, really helpful. But basically, how they saw it is this is the good life. But the problem is, we can't do the good life. And the story of the Old Testament is good life for a bit, fail. 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 And let me ask you a question. How much does that characterize the Christian life? Paul put it like this in Romans 7. Paul said, oh, all the things I never want to do, I do. All the things I do want to do, I never do. Ah. <laughs> Try for a bit, fail. Try for a bit, fail. So what is going on? Because the role of the law was so that when God's people practiced it, the other nations could look at them and go, oh my goodness, your God is amazing. How can we discover who he is? And how can we become like, like him and like you? That's how it was meant to function. Now let's put that in New Testament terms, if that's still the same, if we're to be the salt of the world and the light of the, light of the world and the salt of the earth. I am desperate for people to look at the church and go, oh my goodness, what is, what is on you guys? Because we want to find out. But I don't know if they are. So what's going on? What's going on? Now Jesus, when he begins to teach on these, these th- things, anger, lust, um, divorce, and, and keeping our word, I think he has an Old Testament scripture in mind. And if you've got your Bible, you might want to look at Jeremiah 31. If you haven't got your Bible, look at it when you get home. But I'm going to read it for you now. I know you can probably memorize Jeremiah 30 and 32, but in case you've forgotten 31, I'm going to read it for you now. That was a joke. Um, But it's never good if you have to tell people when you're telling a joke. (laughs) Now, what happens is, hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying about a new way, a new covenant. And he says this in verse 31 of chapter 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. That's what he's referring to. It won't be like that. Why won't it be like that? A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Good life for a bit, fail. Good life for a bit, fail. Good life for a bit, fail. So there's going to be a new way, which is not going to be like that repetitive cycle of do well, fail, do well, fail. Good. Did someone say? (laughs) It's good, isn't it? It's not going to be like that anymore. Yay! But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So whereas the law was given them, thou shalt do this, and then they're commanded to just do it, this is going to be different. This is what's been an external exhortation or command or invitation. 
What's coming external is coming internal. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What he's saying is no longer try for a bit, fail. Try for a bit, fail. He's saying your hearts will keep the law. Your hearts will want the law. Your hearts will love the law. Your hearts will delight in the law. Not Romans 7, which is kind of, I always do the things I never want to do, never do the things I do want to do. Ah, what a wretched man that I am. It's not going to be like that. I will write it on their hearts. So their hearts will love what is important to me. Their hearts will desire what what is not only important to me, but is good for them. Not what they think is good, but what is good for them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, I think Jesus has this in mind when he is is bringing this new teaching and this new way. And if you look to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it is, everyone's like, oh my days, I've never heard anything like this. But I think Jesus has this in mind. Now, then when you look at what he does, what Jesus is doing is exposing the brokenness of the heart. So what Jesus does is he takes the Old Testament laws, the external laws, commanding us what God values and what's going to be good for us, but that we can never do, and Jesus makes it even worse. (laughs) Kind, 70s, ganja-smoking Jesus, he makes it even worse. Because he says, if you're angry with somebody... You're essentially murdering them. If you say, you fool, you're liable to judgment. No longer is it just who you don't jump into bed with. If you look at someone lustfully, you're committing adultery in the heart. So Jesus is almost making it worse. But don't you long... Don't you, even reading Jeremiah 31, don't you long for his laws to be written on our hearts? You know, uh, we've been doing some training as a staff team um, on basically tooling up to help people who are in cycles of um, sexual addiction or pornography addiction. I know this is church. Just, sorry, that slaps you around the face. But we've been, we've been basically tooling up in response on this whole vision for the narrow road character. Basically because, you know, stuff like pornography is just, you know, statistically it's off the charts. And man, the only thing that can make me cry is when you read some piece of evidence that the church is just as bad as, as the world. But what, what, what we've been learning is that this functions essentially as an addiction. And so uh, you can't just say, just stop it. You can't give them an Old Testament command, just stop it. Because what happens is it functions almost like a drug. And how the drug affects the brain is it creates 
pathways that have to be replenished with this drug. But because it functions like a drug, then you ha it has to get stronger and stronger or harder and harder to um, achieve the same high that it did before. And if you look at, um, as we've been doing some research, if you look at what's happening with pornography use, it's getting harder and harder, and it's getting more and more violent. Because people require a stronger and stronger stimulant to achieve you know, what it was before. And we're talking with our uh, teenagers. We've got four children, three of them are teenagers. And they probably hated it. <laughs> But we, we were just like, oh, you know, we just wanted to play our part and have this in the conversation at home. And we were like, what's, what's it like at school? And they were basically saying, Every, everyone they know at multiple times throughout the day through their smartphone is on porn. Break times, lunch times, night. It's just an ever-present reality right throughout the day. This is where we are, you know, it's just, it's not just, you know, uh, uh, what we might caricature as a dirty old man going to a newsagent, shuffling in, finding a magazine off the top shelf, bad as though that was. It is right coming through the devices and it is searching people out. So we went into our school um, and we said, where's this going? Because in... Let's fast forward 25 years. Well, we said to our kids, what does everybody, what do all your mates think is going to happen? And they all assume when they get married, it will, it, they'll stop. But the problem is, what we've been learning, you're dealing with an addiction that has to be fed. And so, you know, it just does not stop, you know, the other side of, uh, of it just will not stop. So we went into school and we said, you know, didn't quote the Bible once, didn't use faith, but we just said, we deal with marriages, we deal with families, we deal with, and, and we've also got teenagers in this school, Where, what are the, what's the state of family life going to be like in 25 years' time when our young people as a generation are being trained to just be you know, feeding on this the whole time? So we've got to get in the game. And, and, um, uh, and so, anyway, so we, we just sort of opened the conversation. I think, can I just say, I want to say just two things on this. Uh, I'm not getting on my um, high horse with this in any way, but I'm just, I'm just passionate. If, who, who was inspired by when we're talking about kingdom of heaven, hitting our community, da 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 Well, this is what it is. This is freedom. You know, because um, this is just twisting people's lives up. And, uh, and not only this, you know, think about, you know, there are men involved, but think about the women. You know, I've got two daughters. I, I can't believe anyone, any uh, girl is born and grows up desiring to be involved in the porn industry. I'm just, just the brokenness. And um, so, anyway, I, before, I wasn't really going to major too much on this. Let me just say that if this is something that you're passionate about, 
email anybody on the senior team and just let us know. Alongside that, if this is something you're personally struggling with, don't let the enemy keep you in the darkness of shame. We just reach out. Because we haven't got everything sorted, but we're learning. And we have seen multiple, multiple breakthroughs already. And I just, you know, this is, this is the, the reality. You know, when we say we want to be a shame-free church, let's just say, do you know what? I need some help in this area. And we will say, thank you for being honest. Boom, let's go. All right? Now, what, what, what at the heart of this passage Jesus is exposing is how our hearts work. And how our hearts work is they work badly. Because he's saying just getting angry with someone is like extinguishing their life. Lusting after someone is, is, is like in your mind, in this fantasy world, committing adultery. The divorce thing, he says, because in that culture, the men were finding it way too easy to divorce the women. And in that culture, if you weren't married, life was really, really hard. And so Jesus like, it needs to not be so easy. And what, he, what he's showing us is, is, is the brokenness of the human heart that turns to stuff to heal itself. So it turns to anger when it's wounded. Or it turns to, or just in that culture, just divorce somebody and just find somebody else and that will make me happy. Or it turns to lust to, to just, you know, gratify in some way or, or, or tend to a heart wound. And so whatever it is, Jesus is saying, this can't be right that because the heart goes after these things and it causes even more havoc. And it's a, it's a hard teaching because at the end of this discourse, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, no, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it almost sounds a bit Old Testament-y because he's basically, he's basically saying, just cut it off, just stop it. You know, just gouge out your eye, just stop it. And yet nobody seems to. So, so what is he teaching? And I think what, he, what he's bringing to the surface is that our hearts are completely wrecked without him. They're completely wrecked without him. And this needs placing alongside all the benefits and blessings of the kingdom. Now over the years in our church, we've tried to straighten out a bit of bad Christian self-image at times by reminding us that we're the father's sons, we're the father's daughters, we're co-heirs with Christ, we're seated in heavenly places, you know, all our favorite verses from Ephesians, you know, all this stuff. And all the blessings of what happens when you are brought into the kingdom by Jesus. And so, you know, at times we've said, you know, let's remember we're co-heirs with Christ. We wake up in the morning and we think, yay, you know, I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm an overcomer and da 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 And it's really good. But it needs to be set alongside how we live and access the life of the kingdom on a daily basis. And how we live and access the life of the kingdom on a daily basis, Jesus told us. It's no secret. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must Deny himself, take up his 
cross and follow me. Now we say that and we remind ourselves, but to take up a cross, we know what that looks like. The cross is where they drove, you know, foot-long nails through his wrists and his ankles. Where he was stretched out so much that to stop himself suffocating, he had to press down on the nails in his ankles just to try and hitch himself up to take a breath before sinking down, you know, as he was crucified. An agonizing death. But Jesus said, this is how you follow me. And I think at the heart of this passage, there needs to be the honest acceptance that our hearts are completely sunk. They're completely, you know, I always remember my very first boss saying to me, most leaders fall by money, sex, or power. Which one are you going to fall by? <laughs> he was like, let's get it out on the table. And I said, probably all three. <laughs> But this is the life that it's kind of, we have so much in Christ, but we have so much in Christ, given to us as a gift, a gracious gift, because we're lost without him, absolutely lost without him. And so when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I pray is, Lord, I want to die to myself today. Because I can't go into autopilot and start trying to do the kingdom stuff with a big mixture of me involved. Because then it's just going to, this is portrayed for us in the Old Testament. You know when they mix with um, you know, the customs and culture of the land they're conquering, it all goes wrong, doesn't it? No. When Jesus is mixed with 21st century individualism and West Sussex, da 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 da, and my background and sixth generation Sicilian, da da da, when Jesus is mixed with that, no. James needs to die. James needs killing off so that Christ can be raised within me and him alone, and it won't be tainted or filtered or diluted through me coming into it. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I want to be a dead man walking today. And I may not always manage it, but I want to be a dead man walking. Take me to the cross before I've done anything. Take me to the cross again, Lord. Take me to the cross. I want to die to myself. And Romans 8 that comes after Romans 7 where Paul is looking back on his life as a Jew. Romans 8 says, but you have died to sin. But you have to die. You have died to sin, and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in your mortal bodies and will give life to your mortal bodies. But how we access the resurrection life is by the self-crucifixion first. Does this make sense? So we wake up in the morning and we say, I want to die today to every preference. Every, you know, if someone struck me on the right cheek yesterday, then I'm not going to walk in anger and persecute them today. I'm going to do what Jesus said, offer them the other one. Because I can't afford to murder them in my heart through walking in anger. So kill me off today before we even get started. And then the good life comes. Because fire lands on sacrifice. 
and on the dead body in the tomb, the spirit landed, which stuns me. Still stuns me, the same spirit. Imagine Jesus wrapped up in grave clothes, embalmed with spices and perfumes, descended into hell, and the same spirit, when the Father says now, comes into his body, (gasps) one miraculous breath, and we're forever changed. And that's the daily reality about how we walk in his presence, how we walk with the fireplace of our character installed to carry the fire of his presence with us through the daily self-crucifixion that Christ will be raised within us. And that's what makes us utterly different to the Old Testament, which is stop doing this, stop doing that. What this is is saying, I would do that given half the chance. So today, kill me off. Because I don't even want to move according to my own will, my own appetites, my own preferences. I can't. Because the wages of sin is death. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to hurt those around me. But as, as we self-crucify, take up our cross, then he's raised within us. He's raised within us. Had this testimony from um, somebody who had been battling with um, just pornography addiction for years and years and years and years and years. I suddenly had the revelation that when we die to ourselves, we become dead to sin. It led to now more than a year worth of freedom. Simple revelation. Now, sometimes, sometimes people, you know, it doesn't always work as simply as that, but sometimes it does work as simply as that. Dying to ourselves, dead to sin, that Christ can be raised. That's probably about all we've got time for today. <laughs>